it was Thursday night, and I was working on my Bloomberg at home, geek that I am, and a headline comes across that says, uh, Washington Mutual's going down. And I'm thinking, this is a Thursday night. They never do this on Thursday. They always do this on Fridays. Right. So they can take the weekend and then let everybody know on Monday. And uh, then it dawned on me, oh, shoot, we're next. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Welcome to the latest edition of LPL Market Signals. I'll be your host today, Ryan Dietrich, and John Lynch, Chief Investment Strategist. I'm the Senior Market Strategist here at LPL. And John, it's a 10-year anniversary of really, probably you could argue, the worst week of the financial crisis. Lehman Brothers went under. We've got a lot of fun stories. Welcome. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. You know, I can't believe it's been 10 years. I think of uh, my career, 1987 was the first big one. Oh, wow. Uh, we had, you know, some challenges throughout the 90s, and then the big one again in 2000, 2001, and then certainly 2007, 2008. I cannot believe it's been a decade since. Time does fly, doesn't it? When you're having fun. That's right. So, you know, here's a little summary, John, what we're going to go over today, just so everyone knows. We're going to start off with kind of what happened 10 years ago, what led up to it, what were some of those major events that got us in really the trouble that we had exactly 10 years ago this week. We're also going to look, John, I know you've got some great stories and events and experiences that you had 10 years ago. We're going to go through a couple of those major... Too many. Major, too many. Too, well, we're just going to pick three then. How's that sound? And then lastly, we're going to wrap it up kind of comparing, you know, then to now. Could we have another financial crisis with sure. what's happening under the surface? So, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun and, you know, this should, this should be a lot of really good podcasts. Now, first things first, John. Our listeners can't see this. This is the way a podcast works. But I just got my hair cut at lunch. Just inform them how good my hair looks right now. Your hair is brown. So <laughs> I'm insanely jealous because about 10 years ago, my hair was brown, too. Oh, and my. that was the third crisis of my career. And for those of you who know me, the Silver Fox, uh, it has not been brown in a long, long time. I, I've heard the stories of the Silver Fox throughout the industry. It is, uh, you're a legend. So. <laughs> in my own mind. <laughs> that's, well, that's right. So, okay, let's get started, John. So 10 years ago. You know, there were some warning signs ahead of September 2008 when Lehman Brothers went under. You know, what, in your opinion, do you think were kind of those, looking back, it's so obvious, obviously, but what do you think some of those major warning signs were that got us into trouble and really led to, you know, 55% drop in stocks over, you know, from peak to trough there? Well, you say 10 years ago. I think the warning signs were beyond that, longer than that. I think about when I, when I moved to Charlotte from New York in 1996, I can remember speaking to a neighbor a year or two later, and he said that he got zero down financing. And I can remember being stunned. And I had never heard that before because it was always 20% down, 20% down. And this fellow was a dentist and he was, you know, prominent member of the community, but nonetheless, zero down really, you know, struck a note with me, struck a chord with me. And, uh, you know, over the course of the ensuing decade, there was an awful lot of that going on, right? And, um, uh, you know, the mortgage market was growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, clearly not everyone understood it. We had an environment where what people thought in subprime was a small percentage of the overall housing market. Looking at the surface, it was. But when you looked at the interconnectivity, if you will, of of the loans and the derivative products, the complex financial uh, uh, securities that were resulting from that, whether it be uh, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, and their whole alphabet soup of, of these products, 
they all built on one another, right? And the cer- certainly what happened was the, the exit was far more crowded than the entrance. That's right. You know, the thing is we've read a lot of different good articles about 10 years ago, and it brings back emotions and thoughts. Here's, a, here's two quotes, John, I wanted to read for you. Uh, ben Bernanke, in May 2007, mm-hmm. we do not expect significant spillovers from the subprime market to the rest of the economy or to the financial system. The next one, January 10th, 2008, the Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession. Looking back, the recession actually started a month before that quote. So that just hammers home. This is one of the most informed people, obviously, in the world, knowing what's going on. Right. I hate to say, you know, he didn't see it coming because I know there were warning signs, like we said, but this truly did catch a lot of people off guard. And the magnitude of the drop in equities and just the stop in the overall economy truly caught probably just about everyone off guard. I think the term you use, magnitude, was really the hit. You know, that really was the the crux of the whole thing, because no one understood the magnitude of the derivative markets, the interconnectivity of interbank lending, uh, the global financial marketplace, and how when liquidity froze, it froze big time, right? We had concerns. I guess the first big hit was Bear Stearns, and then Bear was had the rescue, right, with J.P. Morgan. And then you and had— And that would have been in uh, March of 2008. That would have been March and or remember April the two, of 2008. the two hedge funds blew up from, of Bear Stearns, the subprime hedge funds, in, in July in, of 07. Of S&P's 07. making new highs in July of 07. Exactly. And then Bear Stearns went down, and they continue the story from there, there then. Remain calm all as well, right? That's just two it, small hedge funds, exactly. right? Just That's, a small subprime market, right? Don't worry about it. Market, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, yeah, that just kind of catapulted from July of 07 to February, March of 08. And then, uh, you know, the government tried to get involved, even though Bernanke, you know, um, uh, making those comments, as you and I both know, in forecasting and, you know, being uh, visible in our roles, you know, a lot of times you get humbled. You know, this market will continue to do that to you. So I don't really hold anything against him on that standpoint because that, again, how the derivative market just exploded, I don't think anyone could have... uh, uh, could have predicted, but when you when you look at the whole scenario from July of '07 to April of '08, and then the government tried to get involved, right, with uh, trying to shore up Fannie and Freddie, and then you had uh, the concerns about the money market funds, right, three point seven trillion dollar market that was literally freezing up, uh, and then it just kind of catapulted thereafter to uh, AIG and whether or not. The discussions between different government regulators, because regulation hadn't kept up with the modernization of the financial markets. So we really had antiquated regulatory system on a modern, uh, interconnected global financial marketplace. So not having the proper regulation and government tried to get involved again, shorting up Fannie and Freddie. Um, But then the AIG thing was a big deal, right? Because, you know, it was a, a portfolio of insurance companies that was essentially run as a long short. So they were able to secure funding because the the holding the ho- their holdings were a variety of insurance companies that had individual credit ratings. So there was they were able to secure a loan, but obviously trying to unwind that was a, you know, a major concern as well. But the big mama obviously was was Lehman because Lehman was a non-bank bank, right? Right. And uh trying to secure funding or trying to secure any sort of government regulation at that point. Uh, was really the difficult uh, challenge. And let's not forget, so Lehman went under on September 15th, so right about a year ago right now of 2008. Mm-hmm. And that was, at the time, the largest bank bankruptcy in the United States, $600 billion in assets, 
obviously sent shockwaves through the system. Two days later, we had one of the oldest and largest money market funds in the United States history with $65 billion, broke the buck. Mm -hmm. Remember, NAV of a money market should be a dollar. So that really, we didn't think we were in trouble then when you had $65 billion money markets breaking a dollar. That's when I think all of us realized things were scary. Now, John, let's build on that. I know you've, you've told me some good stories. Maybe good's not the right word, but you know, looking back, you guys are around the dinner table. Um, I believe sometime around September 2008. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let our listeners know how that how the how dinner was Give going for the Lynch of, family back in these fun fun times. Give an indication of the financial acumen of the Lynch family. Um, we uh, I was an employer at Wachovia at the time, right? So you had a series of you know banks going down. Uh, Maryland B of A had just merged. Uh, you know, at at gunpoint, but they, they merged nonetheless. And um, yeah, I can't. It was probably right around. It was between Lehman and Wachovia, uh, so it would have been maybe the third week in September. And I can remember coming home looking all wiped out, and explaining to my wife the dinner table was going on. And uh, you know, kids were preteens at the time, and uh, my son, you know, very technology oriented. He's an engineer now, so we should have could could have figured that Saw out. Saw that coming. Yeah. And. Uh, his main concern was, would his iPods still work? Remember iPods? Remember those things? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> How antiquated those were, right? And uh, so he was concerned about Apple and all that. So I talked to him. And I just, you know, remember looking over to my daughter to get her involved in the conversation. She was younger. And I said, well, you know, the market today fell by more points than any point, any time in history. And without missing a beat, she said, How many points are left? And I can remember just thinking, anytime I have a down market, you know, I always think about, you know, my little girl was ready to double down in the financial crisis, you know, how many points are left? So that I think that's a good point for all investors to keep in mind, because think about it. How many people have been disaffected by that experience? And how many people missed out on a 300% rally? Well, generations, we're going to get into that a yeah. little bit later, kind of the effects uh, on really the millennials and some other people. And mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating. The thing to remember, though, yes, there was a big correction, but... S&P is up over 80% from the peak before the 50% drop. So obviously right. a lot of different uh, ways to look at that. And it scared a lot of people and has really affected generations. But mm-hmm. now the next story, John, you, like you said, you worked at Wachovia. Clearly, I'm sure you have a lot of stories during those times. Kind of what's one of the highlights, or maybe we'll call it lowlights, during uh, you know 10 years ago this week, what was happening? Yeah, not to make light of it, because it, it was a very troubling period. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of really good people working really hard who uh, were devastated. Uh, by it. So it was, it was a very troubling time. But I do remember, um, you know, I was always more of an equity guy than a bond guy. But I remember that uh, it was a Thursday night, maybe a week and a half after Lehman went down. So call it the mid-20s, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, something like that of September of 08. And it was Thursday night and I was working on my Bloomberg at home, geek that I am. And a headline comes across that says, uh, Washington Mutual's going down. And I'm thinking, this is a Thursday night. They never do this on Thursday. They always do this on Fridays. Right. So they can take the weekend and then let everybody know on Monday. And uh, then it dawned on me, oh, shoot, we're next. And sure enough, the next morning I walked in, uh, checked the credit default swap market, which, as you remember, was a really good indicator. Sure was. Who was in trouble. And the financial services sector was the spread on credit default swaps, which were insurance against uh, potential loss. Uh, spread might have been 170 base points for the industry. That morning, we were at 700 base points. So I'm like, oh, boy. Mm. At lunchtime, I checked again. The street hadn't budged at 170, and we were like 1490, you know, 1,500 base point spread. 
So I can remember walking through. It was a sunny day. You know, we had this huge atrium. It was a late summer day, so I'm sure people were taking a 90-minute lunch. And I can remember walking through that atrium thinking to myself, like the the meanest, most surly Bond guy out there, you have no idea how screwed we are. I mean, there literally was a silent run going on the bank, and, you know, essentially no one knew. Uh, so that was uh, that was an experience that I remember it like it was yesterday. Wow. Well, let's hope it's an experience that we don't ever experience Absolutely. in this lifetime. Absolutely. So a third story, Johnny, and I guess the final story uh, experience that you had during this time you do like you do now with LPL. You get to go on TV. I believe yeah. you were bumped by someone at the, this yeah. time. Who, who, who was this? Who was this guy that dared step in front of the Silver Fox before he was going to go on CNBC? And actually, he had worse hair than I did. It was Treasury <laughs> Secretary Henry Paulson. Yeah, he was probably pulling it out. That's right. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I was on. Uh, it was the day TARP was voted down, so it was, wow. you know, I guess two Fridays after Lehman, and. Um, the initial vote on TARP, the $700 billion bailout package, uh, was voted down. So I think the market had, at that time, the Dow was up 1,000, down 1,000, one of those type of really violent uh, moves in the market. And it was a Friday afternoon. It was like 4.15. I was in our studio, and we're on a commercial break. And I can remember talking to Maria Bartiromo at CNBC on the commercial break, and we're both thinking, oh, well, this is unbelievable, isn't it? And, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. And uh, producer gets on and says, uh, John, I need you to hold on for 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, that's fine. What's up? And they said, uh, Treasury Secretary is coming on. So I said, okay, I'm not going to be a diva. I will let, mm-hmm. you know, Henry Paulson go before me. And they said, good, because we want you to critique what he had to say. And at that point, Ryan, I can tell you, my heart was in my throat because, you know, personally, I'm dug into this thing, right? I've sure. been a 20-year employee at the firm and, uh, uh, you know, emotionally invested in everything. And just, you know, my vocation and my avocation were both tied into this. And uh, when I heard that, I just wanted to cry, you know, because as you know, when you're on television, there's no place to hide. You're no. on the hot seat. And to to have to critique the the, the Treasury Secretary was a, was a real challenge. You know, I did get to see him at an event several years after, and he and I were uh, speaking at at another event for Wells Fargo, and um, I opened with that story. Naturally, he didn't remember it, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you know, he was uh, was very gracious when I recounted that story. That's great. You know, I know you and I both read, our good friends at Barron's read a really good article this weekend. Um, interviewing Absolutely. Henry Paulson. Yep. And mm-hmm. again, I advise everyone after this podcast is over to check that out and just kind of look at the true fear that was in the system and just the way Mr. Paulson explained it. It brought back, you know, some very scary times for myself as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you lost sure, a little you sleep were dug during in that then. time. You were dug in then. I sure was. I mean, you mentioned CNBC. I mean, I was doing a lot of CNBC back then also. And I remember going on, you always get those normal butterflies before TV. But when you hear the stats of just the ratings they were getting, there were literally 100 million people watching. When you're on TV mm-hmm. and there's that many people worldwide watching, that's um, that's something that is just um, unbelievable. And I guess we made it through it looking back, um, but still, it just was fascinating, fascinating time. So let's. So that was back then, John. Let's talk about now. You know, we've laid out why we don't see a recession coming anytime soon. But, you know, what could get us in trouble to have another financial crisis when that next recession is to hit, say, in a year, two, three years? I mean, what, sure. what do you think? I'm, I'm not dodging that there? question, but I do want to say something before sure. we get to that. You know, I think the key to successful long-term investing is really to make sure 
you invest in companies or invest in an economy or invest in a society that exhibits traits where they can adapt, where they can recover, where they can innovate, and then they can find a way to grow again. So we think about adaptability, recovery, innovation, and growth. That's something I've really, I've really harped on over the last 30 years or so of my career. And I think 10 years ago was a great example, right? Because uh, I mentioned earlier we had integrated regulatory systems and oversight on a very modernized global financial marketplace. So uh, some would argue we went too far. We pulled some, some back on some of that. But nonetheless, we have arrived at a place where regulation is more consistent with globalization, if you will. Um, you know, Ben Bernanke, former chair of the Fed, um, uh, you know, had those two forecasts, which uh, many people have referred to. But Ben Bernanke, uh, if if we did not have Ben Bernanke, I don't think we would have come through this. I mean, the combination of President Bush and uh, Henry Paulson, Timothy Geithner uh, at the New York Fed, as well as Ben Bernanke, the way those four work together and uh, Minneapolis Fed Chair um, Neil Kashkari was uh, uh, working with Henry Paulson at Treasury at the time also. And the innovative policies that they enacted through quantitative easing, through uh, 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 what was the twist, Operation, Operation twist, twist, where mm-hmm. they would take right. uh, maturing longer-term securities and uh, re- uh, shorter-term securities and reinvest them on the long long-term, term. essentially mm-hmm. refinancing uh, U.S. debt uh, can be argued it was kicking the can down the road, but it did prevent a calamitous fall into the abyss. So, you know, we have to give them credit. It was innovative. It was controversial. But nonetheless, you know, we, we, we're, we're still standing a decade later, and I think that's very important. Exactly. To your question about what could happen now going forward, um, first off, I don't see the leverage in the system uh, that we had back then. You know, we had uh, leveraged excesses that enabled the economy to grow at five and six percent in 2006, 2007. Um, those leveraged excesses became leveraged risks, and that pulled the economy down by five or six percent in 08 in the first half of 09. You know, if companies were levered, I don't know, 35 or 40 to one back then, maybe it's eight to 10 to one now. So we have uh, less leverage. There is some concern about companies that have use leverage to uh, buy back shares or to pay yield because they could, because that was kind of a, you never want to say it's different this time when the world's leading central banks uh, artificially suppress the short end of the curve and all companies have equal access to low and an invariable cost of capital. You know, that that was really the game they were playing then. Now that we have... Uh, you know, new regulation, new tax incentives for investment. I think you're you're starting to see less buyback. You're starting to see less uh, uh, focus on balance sheet repair and stuff like that. And you're seeing starting to see companies, particularly with the immediate expensing uh, provisions of the most recent tax cut. You're seeing companies go out and attain new market share as opposed to simply maintaining existing that's, share. That's right. And you look at just the recent earnings, we've seen definitely a pickup in CapEx. We have saw a really strong productivity number recently. So those are some things we haven't seen for a while that are finally starting to kick in the gear. And yes, this is a nine-year economic cycle. Yes, it's the second oldest since World War II. But those are things that do suggest that we could definitely have a potentially years left of growth. You know, one thing I wanted to point out, John, 
kind of you mentioned kind of what happened and stocks were down. One thing that always fascinated me, the S&P was down about 38% in 2008 for the year. 20-year mm-hmm. Treasury bonds were up about 34% for the year. So, you know, yes, your equities were down significantly, but it's kind of a, you know, if you have a 60-40 portfolio, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but yeah, you're not down 38%. You have, a, you know, the bonds, the right. fixed income part really did well there, and fixed income in general. And, you know, let's talk about, for investors now, should we have another market, major market correction? You know, fixed income probably will hopefully cushion a lot of that and why we should remain you know, well diversified using fixed income, maybe even other parts of the globe when it comes to your overall investments. Yeah, I think uh, you know one man's bear market is another man's bull market, right? right. And I think we've always got to keep that in mind. And um, in a diversified portfolio, something should always you know, be, be uh, rewarding you and something should be troubling you, right? There's a, a bull market everywhere. There's a bear market everywhere. Um, So I just think that sort of diversification, I get this a lot, and I'm sure you do too in your client events uh, when you're meeting with investors. We've had a 35-year bull market in bonds, and a lot of people say we should get out. I'm like, well, no, Mm -hmm. look at how how the bond market helps stabilize portfolios in February when we had the correction, and then early April again when we had the correction that was tariff-related. The the first correction of 2018 was concerned about wage inflation. The second was when tariffs were initially introduced. So when you think about, for example, sovereigns, you know, U.S. Treasuries, for example, you know, they, they provide liquidity, they provide stability, they provide income, there's a good credit rating, right? So global investors, in spite of our spending profligacy, there's still a bid for us, in many cases, in spite of us. And I think a lot of what's going on with the yield curve right now uh, has at least as much to do with valuation as it does to concern about long-term growth prospects, if not more with valuation. If you see global investors having the opportunity to buy the JGB, the Japanese government bond, it will round and call it three basis points, right. or the German boon at 30 basis points, or they can get the U.S. Treasury approaching 300 basis points. You know, you and I may look at long-term charts and say that U.S. Treasury 10-year is expensive, but on a relative basis, some would argue globally that it's a screaming buy compared to some of the other sovereigns. No, great points there for sure. So let's maybe wind up and wind down here with this. During the Great Depression, you, I believe the Dow was down about 89%. A generation of investors simply didn't trust stocks anymore. Right. Clearly with the two 50% corrections in early 2000 in the financial crisis, we have what it feels like another generation, specifically the millennials, who saw their parents go through it the first time. They kind of just got out of college, couldn't get a job, you know, 10 years ago. And they're dealing with it now. And there are two fascinating stats I want to mention. Then, John, I want your opinion kind of on, you know, lost um, generations with investments and what it really means. But mm-hmm. in 2007, 65% of all you uh, in the U.S., 65% of all people owned a stock. It's only 55% now, With again, with the S&P up 80% from the 2007 peak. And then also a really good study by Betterment, which is a robo-firm. Now, who uses robo-firms? A lot of times millennials. They asked mm-hmm. 2,000 people this. What's the stock market done in the last 10 years? Um, 48% thought there had been no gain. 18% actually thought the stocks were down the last 10 years. So that just kind of tells you this major disconnect with what's really truly happening. And again, I think it's all about a generation that was burned a couple times and they really don't want anything to do with stocks. What do you think there? Yeah, I think if you even, you know, beyond millennials, even, you know, looking at people who got hit in 2000 as well, in 2001 and then 2007, 2008, I just think it's a, 
you know, we, we always must remember the power of compounding. And if people are trying to prepare for their retirement or whatever financial goals they're trying to achieve, recognize the importance of earnings and income compounded annually and what that can do for a portfolio. And within a diversified portfolio, um, I just think it is troubling. You know, we've history's laden with it, right? With examples exactly. of people coming mm-hmm. out of the depression, as you mentioned. Um, I think it's terribly important for investors to always make sure you have X amount of cash to get help you to sleep at night. You know, if that's a, a year's worth of living expenses, whatever it takes. But upon that, achieving that number, um, I think it's a big mistake not to be investing simply because the power of compounding. And as you know, if, if rates are headed in a different direction in the last 35 years, as we suspect, if inflation's heading in a different direction, as we suspect over the next 35 right. years, now is the time to you know, to, to, to build a diversified portfolio, again, to help meet those retirement needs and other needs, you know, that college, uh, buying a house, you know, all, all those things were the, the most critical parts of, uh, you know, an investor's future. Well, that's great stuff, John. I think I'm going to wrap it up now and I'll let you close out. But I just want to say I appreciated the last 25 minutes getting to talk with you today about your experiences. Obviously, for our listeners, hopefully you got a lot out of it because <laughs> cycles happen. Psychology and investment is always the same. These lessons that hopefully John has shared with us today are things that you know you can put uh, just store away and be aware of that um, you know there's going to be another crisis. There's going to be another bear market. And there's always an opportunity when that happens. So, John, thank you very much, and you can take us home. Thank you, Ryan. I, I love your new bumper sticker for LPL research. Cycles happen. That's right. You know, that's something we should keep in mind <laughs> because, you know, how do you, again, how do you adapt, how do you recover, how do you innovate, and how do you grow? It really takes those four steps over the course of a cycle to end up being successful. So thank you. I enjoyed it. And, uh, yes, uh, we'll be on the lookout for all our investors on, on things we may see may go wrong, and we'll continue to emphasize what we think will be going right. So thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Thanks, everyone. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construe as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.